This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 82. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. With Joe and Kamala at the helm, you're not going to have to think about the crazy things they said every day. And that's worth a lot. You're not going to have to argue about them every day. It just won't be so exhausting. You, you might be able to have a Thanksgiving dinner without having an argument. You'll be able to go about your lives knowing that the president is not going to retweet conspiracy theories about secret cabals running the world or, or that Navy SEALs didn't actually kill bin Laden. Think about that. The president of the United States retweeted that. Imagine. What? What? Imagine that. Imagine not having crazy shit come out of our president every single day. Imagine our country being respected by the world again. Imagine a peaceful Thanksgiving or just a peaceful day. Imagine it all not being so exhausting. Even Captain Cool himself, President Barack Obama, is angry. That's because he's paying attention. And this week, he laid it out in one of his best speeches ever, that one from Philadelphia. It was a speech overflowing with heart, candor, facts, and fire. Watch the whole thing online and show it to your kids. That is what American leadership sounds like. And it's exactly what's been lacking in our country at the top for the last four years. Real, strong American leadership. It's what was lacking in the final debate. It's what's lacking in fighting the pandemic. It's what's lacking in the White House. And in just a few weeks, we have the power to change that, to put real American leadership back in front. And that doesn't just mean Joe Biden. It means a wave of leaders from both parties and no party at all that are united in driving our country forward through this terrible time. If there's one thing that President Mayhem has done that's good for America, it's uniting us. Trump has succeeded in uniting more Americans than any other president in our lifetime. He's united millions all across the country against him. That's the silver lining of all this fighting against Donald Trump. All these groups of Democrats, independents, and Republicans that have been created to fight Trump. The silver lining, the opportunity, is that after he's defeated, that same broad, deep, and diverse coalition of groups and people can stand with Joe Biden 
and more importantly, stand with America for the long and hard rebuilding that'll be required. You heard on this show from guests from all sides and from Republicans like Governor Christine Todd Whitman, Rick Wilson, and Megan McCain. They're the political soldiers that'll join with Democrats that have been on this show like Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Ambassador Susan Rice, Tulsi Gabbard, and Amy McGrath. And they'll also be joined by Mick Foley, Stephen Colbert, Mike Shinoda, and countless others. And together, all the fighters that have been fighting against Trump can stay united for the massive fights ahead and the war that's upon us. When this war for the soul of America is finally over, whether it's in November or months later, when the war is finally over, all these political soldiers will have an opportunity, an obligation to put down their guns and pick up a shovel or a laptop and get to work. Get to work on rebuilding our country to build it back better. That's our challenge. And that's our opportunity. And stakes is high. They've never been higher than right now. Trump has created strange and diverse alliances, and he's united more Republicans against him than any other Republican president in American history. And it's those Republicans of conscience and many independents that will not only change the course of this election, but change the course of what happens after the election. They can all unite with a new president to fight the coronavirus, to create true racial equality, to rebuild our infrastructure, to rethink our schools, and to finally unite all Americans against our enemies, foreign and domestic. Together, they can unite against the racist Proud Boys attacking our values, the ISIS fighters attacking our troops overseas, and the Russians and Iranians attacking our elections. This is the true test of our country for all times. And we need fighters. And we need builders. And we need Republicans. Republicans like Chuck Hagel. These are tough times in America, and it's time now to listen to our toughest leaders, leaders like Chuck Hagel. Chuck Hagel's leadership was built in Nebraska and forged in Vietnam. He's a true American success story, and he's been an independent voice of reason on our political landscape for a generation. Hagel served as the 24th Secretary of Defense from February 2013 to February 2015. He was a rare Republican in the cabinet of President Obama and the first Vietnam veteran and the first formerly enlisted soldier in American history to lead the Pentagon. America is being tested from every side and from within. Attacks on our elections, attacks on our troops in Afghanistan, attacks on our Pentagon leadership by our own president. And this week, foreign policy finally took center stage in the final presidential debate between Trump and Biden. And Chuck Hagel's here to break down how and if our military, foreign policy, and political leadership is or isn't ready for what's to come. 
It's a candid, personal, insightful conversation that he had with me on Zoom. Chuck Hagel shares the Joe Biden he's known for decades, the Donald Trump he's seen up close, and the future he sees for America. And he shares how important this moment is right now. My generation, the baby boom boom generation, has had a pretty good ride. I mean, I don't know if there's been a generation of mankind who's had it better than we've had it. Oh, we've had our ups and downs and all the rest. But my goodness, uh, the opportunities we've had. I mean, you take uh, some little kid like me from Western Nebraska. I lived in nine towns before I graduated from high school, all little towns, and, and never been out of the state. Somebody would have told me in Vietnam, uh, when I went over as a private and came back as a sergeant, you're going to be a United States senator someday. You'll be secretary of defense someday. You'll be president of the world, USO someday, on and on and on and on. You'll start to companies. I, I, I wouldn't have believed it. I, I just would not have believed it. But this is the kind of country we have. And I think my generation has true, truly, really benefited from it. But every generation, subsequent generation, benefits even more. And I think the question is now, we live in a country where these next generations behind mine are going to be able to say, I've benefited more than my dad's, the baby boom generation. I think think that's the real tester. It's real, it's sobering, but it's also warm and uplifting. Chuck Hagel served two terms in the U.S. Senate representing Nebraska. He was the president of the World USO, and in the mid-1980s, after returning from Vietnam, He co-founded Vanguard Cellular Systems, a highly successful company. He's also the author of America, Our Next Chapter, and the subject of a 2006 book entitled Chuck Hagel, Moving Forward. Hagel's a statesman, an entrepreneur, a grandfather, and always a patriot. And now, he's a leader of National Security Leaders for Biden, a group of 780 retired generals, admirals, senior enlisted ambassadors, and former senior national security officials that are supporting Joe Biden for president. Chuck Hagel's gone against his own political party, conventional wisdom, and our enemies for decades. Now he's fighting against Trump with that same grit that was built in Nebraska and forged in Vietnam. And his voice is one that must be heard now and especially in the critical weeks to come. Cold weather's coming, and tougher days are coming. We're in for a rough fall and potentially an even rougher winter. But we can get through it, and we can build it better for our kids and our grandkids. And leaders like Chuck Hagel will get us through them. This is a fall of mayhem, and Angry Americans is continuing to guide you through it all with important, iconic, and inspiring guests who are shaping what America's been, what it is now, and what it will be in the future. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention, especially in this moment, especially after that debate, and especially as Election Day finally approaches. But even in this spooky season, be not afraid. We can face what's to come, and we can face it strongly with the four eyes of integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. Great John Fogarty wrote and performed Fortunate Son. And Donald Trump was using it for his campaign rallies. And Fogarty issued him a cease and desist order. The legendary founder of Creedence Clearwater Revival posted his directive in a statement on Twitter. And it read, 
I object to the president using my song, Fortunate Son, in any way for his campaign. He's using my words and my voice to portray a message that I do not endorse. Therefore, I'm issuing a cease and desist order. I wrote this song because, as a veteran, I was disgusted that some people were allowed to be excluded from serving their country because they had access to political and financial privilege. I also wrote about wealthy people not paying their fair share of taxes. Mr. Trump is a prime example of both of these issues. The fact that Mr. Trump also fans the flames of hatred, racism, and fear while rewriting recent history is even more reason to be troubled by his use of my song. That's from John Fogarty. John Fogarty is a veteran and a patriot, and I hope he won't object to me using his song here now. Because Chuck Hagel is also a veteran and a patriot, and he's no fortunate son. But the guy running for re-election is, and his presidency is something we all need to cease and desist at the ballot box this fall. And thanks to leaders like Chuck Hagel, we're ready for it. Welcome to a conversation about service, sacrifice, and security. Welcome to a conversation about real, true American leadership. Welcome to a conversation about the future of America. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 82. gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world. I am very, very excited to bring to you a conversation with a man that I admire tremendously and my, a man that I respect, maybe my f- favorite politician ever in Washington, uh, because he's much more than a politician. He's a role model. Uh, he's a leader. Uh, he's a business leader. Uh, he's a family man and just a great voice and conscience for America and a guy I've been honored to know for a long time. The great and powerful Secretary Chuck Hagel joins us on Angry Americans. Hello, sir. How are you? Paul, thank you very much. Nice to be with you. So great to have you here. Uh, We were getting warmed up and I said, how many infantry guys does it take to get a Zoom going? But we got it going and I'm thrilled to have you here. I want to ask you a question right off the top because I know you'll know. You have been a senator and you've been a Secretary of Defense. for the, for the folks out there who aren't Washington insiders, we should refer to you as secretary. Is, it, is that right? Or do you get to choose? <laughs> well, it was Chuck before it was anything else. And that's, that still works. I, I suppose the, the formal way they, they do this is whatever the last office was that you held. Ah. It's the title that you, uh, you take. But uh, Chuck's just fine. That works. Excellent. Well, I'm still going to defer to calling you Mr. Secretary or Sir. I hope you don't mind that. Yeah. Uh, but it's really great to talk to you. We haven't seen each other in person in a long time, but we yeah. go way, way back. I was looking, I think it was 2004 when we first met. I had just come home from Iraq. Yeah. We had this startup group called Operation Truth. It wasn't even yet IAVA yet. And I was uh, struck by the fact that I think you were the first senator to ever meet with us. 
we were, we were getting a lot of resistance. People said, Hey, why do you need a new veterans group? Why should I talk to you? You know, uh, we've got the VFW, uh, or we just didn't have time for, for these new folks. And you made time for us. We had a small group of, of young veterans and you didn't just come for the photo. You gave us a lot of time. And I, that will always strike me. There's a photo of it. I had it in my book. And, and I'm always struck by the fact that you were really the first guy to open the door for our generation of veterans in Washington. And I think you've kept that door open and you've been supportive of us ever since. Well, uh, that's generous, Paul, and I appreciate it. Uh, I recall our first meeting and I recall your guys coming in and uh, we met in my conference room, if I believe. Yep. I'm correct. And uh, we did spend a lot of time because I was uh, very interested in your thoughts. And I suspect, you know, uh, people who've gone through what you've gone through, what I've gone through, and so many others uh, with my experience in Vietnam, uh, I, I wanted to understand what you guys thought, the guys at the bottom who were fighting the war uh, and who, who were doing the dying and being wounded and coming back with big scars. I wanted to understand you and what you thought. And I, I suspect that that was uh, a direct result of my time in, in Vietnam. And uh, as I got older and took on more responsibilities and jobs, I always, always did that uh, because I thought that was the only way you really got a good understanding of policy and how it affects people. And whether those carrying out that policy think it's effective if they think it's the right thing to do. So, no, I remember the meeting. I remember our subsequent meetings. I remember developing a relationship. And I always admired what you were doing and the guys that you were doing it with because you did present an alternative voice. And I think at that time, that was particularly important. Mm. Well, you've been a refreshing and powerful alternative voice, I think, for decades in the American political landscape. I want to get into that. I want to get into national defense. I want to get into leadership. A lot of things that you have a very unique and, and important perspective on. But I want to ask you a question I've been asking all of our guests since the pandemic started. Secretary Hagel, where are you in the country? And what's the last six months of the pandemic, seven months now, been, been like for you and the people close to you? Well, I'm in McLean, Virginia. That's uh, uh, where we've lived, I, I guess, since 2000. Um, and, um, it's, as you know, it's not too far out of Washington, about 15 miles out of Washington, but I get in, in and out of Washington often look at my main offices in Washington. And I suspect my family, uh, and my last six months dealing with the pandemic has not been really any different from most Americans. You, you try to do the right thing. You try to do uh, not stupid things. Uh, wear your mask, uh, follow guidelines. I happen to believe in science. I believe in doctors. Uh, and I think uh, if you do that and you comport yourself in a responsible way, you know, we're going to get through this. It's, it's been a difficult time. We've got, I think, more difficult months ahead of us. And um, so my life has, yes, been turned upside down, but everybody's life has been turned upside down. I'm fortunate. My family's fortunate that I can still keep doing things that uh, I was doing before, although it's uh, different vehicles, as you know, Zoom and Skype. And, uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm getting to know these, uh, these things are getting to be good friends with <laughs> of mine, Mr. Zoom and Mr. Skype and so on, but, <laughs> but they, they, uh, they work and it's going to change everything, Paul, as you know, 
we'll get through this, but the consequences uh, are going to be immense for our economy because it is going to change the way people do business. Mm. It's going to change the approaches and marketing approaches. There's nothing that's going to be untouched uh, by that. But, you know, uh, we Americans are pretty good at adjustment and uh, adaptation and figuring it out. Uh, we get all cranky at the beginning and we don't like it and it's discomforting and so on and so on. And, and uh, but uh, in the end, uh, we buckle down and um, we get through it. And I think it's always been because we've had good leaders. I don't mean just political leaders. I mean, what you're doing, uh, veterans, uh, veterans lead all the time in their communities, but uh, community leaders, business leaders, teachers, Mm-hmm. Um, we've just been so blessed this country has for 250 years. We've had that assemblage of good people, uh, who believe in right things. And you got, you got the fringes on the left and the right. And we've always had that. That's okay. It gives it a little personality, but, uh, that, that, that doesn't solve the problem, but we are solver. We are solvers of problems, Americans, mm-hmm. and, and we'll get through this. I, I appreciate that perspective very much. Um, you've always been a, a truth teller, and, and I think your, your optimism, but also grounded in the reality that we've got hard days ahead is part of why I think you appeal to so many people of so many different backgrounds. A lot of folks who listen to the show are politically independent. You know, they'll view you as, as kind of a spirit animal, you know, in the same way John <laughs> McCain and others worked across partisan lines. Um, I want to come back to that in a second, but we talked about the Zoom room, this new reality. Uh, you, you said you had something on the wall that, that, that you don't have when we hit play here that I want to ask you about in, in the context of a question we ask of all of our guests. Secretary Hagel, when you're having a cocktail or a drink, what is your preferred drink of choice, your adult beverage of, of choice? Uh, well, uh, I actually like a lot of different drinks, but I, I suppose my favorite is Tito's Vodka Martini. Uh, up, dry, and olives. That's that's probably my favorite. But uh, I mean, I I like them all though. And you you were you were telling me about a whiskey bottle that was uh, on your shelf that's not there anymore. <laughs> Can you share a little bit more with folks about why that was so so special? We talk a lot about whiskey on the show, especially American whiskey. But can you share a little bit about what what, what was on your shelf before? Yes, and matter of fact, I took it off the shelf before this show and. Um, thought, well, maybe I shouldn't have that in my background, but it just, it, it resides right behind me uh, most of the time. But it's a, a bottle of very good Irish whiskey that was given to me when I left the Pentagon by the, all the chiefs of staff of the services and the chairman and the vice chairman, and they each signed their name on the bottle. Now, I've, I've not opened it up uh, because I, I, I thought it was just so great. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and I kept it here in my study. Mm. So um, I suppose it's not for everybody's programming, <laughs> and, and I didn't I didn't uh, want to embarrass you or uh, any of your people by keeping it there. So I thought, well, when in doubt, you just better take it off. Uh, I'm glad we got this. If ever there was a show to talk about the whiskey bottle, this is going to be that show. <laughs> uh, and uh, I want to talk a bit more about, you know, the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs, but I want to ask you another question that we ask of all of our guests that, that shares a little bit of insight to what your life was like uh, coming up and, and growing up. You, you know, grew up in, in Nebraska and represented uh, Nebraska proudly for so long. But Secretary Hagel, when you were young, what was your very first car? Uh, my first car was a 1950 
Henry J. Now, most people have no idea what that is, but it, it was a Henry J. Kaiser. Uh, the Kaiser Car Company was was pretty uh, a significant car company up until about the early 60s, and then it just went away. They couldn't compete. But the Henry J. was really the first uh, subcompact car in America. It was, a, it was kind of an ugly little thing, a little hunchback and so on. Uh, a, a, maybe a bigger version of a, of a Volkswagen Beetle. Right. And it was red. I painted it red uh, for uh, Nebraska, go big red. And uh, it was a great little, little four-cylinder, great little car, and puttered it around. And uh, then my, I, I'm the oldest of four boys. So I've got, my brothers are pretty close in age. I've got one two years younger and one three years younger. So we all used to, and my father died when we were in high school. So, and I was the oldest of four. So it drove my mother crazy. We, we'd, uh, we all had jobs. And so we could afford to buy a $50 car or whatever it was. And then we'd trade each other our cars. So I sold my Henry J to my brothers twice. And then I'd get something else. And then my next car was a Jeep, um, a World War II Jeep. I love that thing. Wow. And, and uh, I, I drove that for a year. And then I sold that for uh, old, uh, I think it was a 55 Plymouth station wagon and then a 55 Pontiac. And I, before I got out of high school, I had five cars and none of my brothers then got them. And then after I got out of high school, I went to a lot of colleges actually before I got out of one of them. And uh, so I had a, a great car, a 1948 Ford. It was a coupe, a 48 coupe. It was an eight cylinder flathead eight. And that thing ran like crazy. I mean, it was unbelievable. Wow. And, uh, and my brothers all had it too. But anyway, um, I, yeah, I just I started with that little Henry J. and I and progressed to everything: jeeps, station wagons, trucks. Tried them all, and so did my brothers. Uh, you and your brothers were some good guys to know. Were they all in Nebraska red? Was that a theme? Did you paint them all in Nebraska red? Yeah. <laughs> um, not everyone I'm red. No, we, we did paint them all colors that we liked, and it, it wasn't a particularly. A well done paint job uh, or, or or finish, but it served our purpose. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I, well, when you're in Nebraska, you find your own fun. And, and <laughs> so hunting and fishing and uh, trading old cars and working. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for sh- for sharing that. You, you know, you've you've always been a guy who brings candor, who speaks truth to power. Whether you've been inside government, outside of government. Um, you, it's important to know you were the first Vietnam vet to ever serve as Secretary of Defense, the first enlisted soldier, I believe, to serve as Secretary of Defense. So we had, you know, I think a lot of us felt felt like we had one of our own on the inside, somebody who, yeah. who was a grunt, who had been on the ground, who would understand what it was like to be in, in the boots of the men and women overseas. And at the time you were SecDef, I believe there were at least two other Vietnam vets in the cabinet with Shinseki and Kerry. So it was a historic time. There might have been yeah. a fourth, but to have three Vietnam vets in, in the cabinet, yeah. I think was really was really significant and, and historic. But you have such a deep understanding of the national security environment. I, I want to ask you, sir, can you lay out for us what is the national security environment right now as you see it? You know, we've talked a lot in this show about the threats foreign and domestic. We try to have a conversation frequently about what's happening overseas. Uh, this will air right after a debate that's supposed to be focused on foreign policy. But from your vantage point, having been Secretary of Defense and having been a grunt in the field, can you lay out what does the national security landscape look like right now? And 
What do you anticipate it's going to look like in the next couple of weeks where we could see some real unrest in this country? Well, uh, my interpretation and sense of um, our foreign policy today is that it's confusing. I think it's confusing in our own government. I think it's confusing to our own citizens. And I know it's confusing to the world. Um, foreign policy should be based on a clear understanding uh, of a country's national interests. And how those national interests are incorporated into the broader international framework of uh, alliances, of allies, Trade is a big part of that, economics. Uh, now we've got a global pandemic. That's always been there. It didn't just start with COVID-9. We've got big environmental issues. Uh, these are big global issues that affect every country. They don't stop at a boundary or an ocean. And so foreign policy has to encompass all of that. A nation has to figure out what its, what its interests are in, in these areas and who its friends are and, and its alliances. I, and I have always believed, and the older I get, Paul, I believe this more, uh, the post-World War II order that the United States led in building uh, was based on primarily one thing, common interests. So the coalitions of common interests that we all built, the United Nations, Collective Security, NATO, um, IMF, World Bank, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is now the WTO, dozens of other uh, international institutions, th they were built so that we would have some order in the world, not, not to dictate or take uh, sovereignty away from a country, but to try to reconcile differences uh, in the international community. Wasn't this better than sending armies across the borders after each other, like the first 50 years of the 20th century, which were the most deadly in history? Um, so I think we were pretty successful with that the last 75 years. No World War III, no nuclear exchange, a lot of problems. Yes, regional wars, we're still in them, a lot of unfairness, but more people free than ever before, more people prosperous than ever before, more education than ever before. Um, and I think we uh, sometimes don't appreciate what's been accomplished. We always look at the immediate problem. And then we're sometimes too uh, easily swayed to throw everything out. Well, it doesn't work. Well, of course, an institution, or me, or you, or any of us, uh, change. Factors change. The worlds change. So you have to adjust. You have to adapt. It doesn't mean that you throw the United Nations out or it's no good. But the United Nations of 2020 is a different United Nations. has to be than 2000 or 1990 because of new challenges, new opportunities. So I think when the question you ask, you have to put all of that in the larger framework mm. and, and then figure out where the United States is in all of that. For example, um, and I, I'm, I'm not going to get political here in the program, but, but I think you can't have a discussion like this unless you talk about a current administration's policy or the president's policy. And, and this president, has undermined every alliance we have, undermined every relationship in the world that we have. Uh, he's, he's walked away uh, from agreements, from different treaties. Uh, that's not the way you build a strong foreign relations. That's not how you build 
a national security interest for us because uh, let's just take the narrow band of national security as defined by defense. We, as you know so well, and many of your listeners, we couldn't project the power that America projects in the world today without the alliances and the allies who allow us to have bases in their countries, Air Force bases, naval bases, um, and infantry bases. If we didn't have those, we wouldn't have at all the, the power projection we have. Intelligence, gathering, and sharing. Uh, we, we pick up a lot of important intelligence from our allies because they will share that intelligence with us. Why is that? They trust us. They trust us. And it's there in their interest, too. Again, back to my point about common interests. It's in common interest for the Australians and the Canadians and, and the British and others to be sharing information with us. We share with them. And if you start breaking that down, breaking that apart, and say, well, we're not, not going to do that. We'll, we'll do our own. We don't need you. Thank you. Uh, that is foolish. And that is dangerous. And that will result in some big problems. So your question, what could there be in the way of a change in foreign policy the next few weeks after an election? Well, I don't think we'll see it if, if Vice President Biden is elected a change in the next, next two weeks or anything like that. But there, there will certainly be a change. And I think that's it's pretty clear to understand if you uh, and your people do pay attention what's going on. Joe Biden has a clear record on foreign policy. Uh, President Trump's had a clear record on foreign policy the last four years. So I think people know pretty much where, where they stand. So if Biden is the next president, there will be a change and there will be a focus. And I suspect that focus will be back to, to trying to repair damage done to those alliances, those allies, those treaties that, uh, and those agreements that we've pulled out of. And um, it doesn't mean that they don't need some review or they don't need to be looked at. But it will be a whole different approach, I think, than than what we've seen. And everybody, the citizens of this country, they've got to figure out what they think is the best for this country mm -hmm. and uh, what protects this country, what gives this country more of a future. Where, where, all, where all this is going to go for your children and your grandchildren. And I think, you know, I, I know you have children, I have children, and, and the older you get, the more responsibility you take on in life. And you think about those children. You think about what they're going to be dealing with. Quite frankly, I'll, and I'll end with this, uh, Paul. Um, my generation, the baby boom, gener baby boom generation, has had a pretty good ride. I mean, I don't know if there's been a generation of mankind who's had it better than we've had it. Oh, we've had our ups and downs and all the rest. But my goodness, uh, the opportunities we've had. I mean, you take uh, some little kid like me from western Nebraska. I lived in nine towns before I graduated from high school, all little towns. And never been out of the state. Somebody would have told me in Vietnam, I went over as a private and came back as a sergeant, you're going to be a United States senator someday, you'll be secretary of defense someday, you'll be president of the world, USO someday, on and on and on and on, you'll start to companies. I, I, I wouldn't have believed it. I, I just would not have believed it. But this is the kind of country we have. And I think my generation has true, truly, really benefited from it. But every generation, subsequent generation, benefits even more. And I think the question is now, are we, going to, are we, we live in a country where these next generations behind mine 
are going to be able to say, I've been benefited more than my dad's, right. the baby boom generation. I think, I think that's the real tester. Mm. You, you talk, sir, about the importance of relationships and alliances, and I've been extremely critical of the president on many levels, but maybe <clears throat> nowhere more than his relationship with the military and the Pentagon. And I, I feel like he's politicized the military in a way that we've never seen. In, you know, in, in some ways, I would argue deploying National Guardsmen against peaceful protesters in, in, in Washington, D.C. Is, is more dangerous than sending them to Iraq for the way it impacts our, our democracy and weaponizes what's supposed to be a civilian-controlled military. Many people are worried now. They, they feel like the military has been politicized and Trump thinks it's his military. Uh, Milley had to issue, uh, Chairman Joint Chiefs Milley issued an apology for being politicized. He's now at odds with Trump over the Afghanistan pullout. Secretary Esper is in danger, it seems, of being fired every day in the Pentagon. They call him behind his back, Yesper. The president called him out loud, Yesper, because he does what Trump wants him to do, sometimes in conflict with the interests of our troops. Um, what, what is your view on the, the relationship right now and how precarious it is with our military, especially at a time when some folks are hoping the military will save us? If Trump refuses to go, if there's uh, disorder in the streets, you know, people are looking to the military to be the guardrail, to be the, the, the defenders of, of our values. At the same time, the president continues to politicize them. So can you talk about that relationship in particular? You were a Republican sec def for President Obama. Um, you had your differences as, as well. But can you talk about how you view and, and how dangerous you view this moment and that conflict that seems daily? Well, uh, that's a very good question, Paul, and it's a very relevant question. It's a, it's a very real question for our times. And we really never, not in my lifetime, we've never had a situation where anyone would have to ask that question or have, or have that concern. Right. It just has never been brought up. You mentioned I was a Republican uh, working for a Democrat, working for President Obama as his Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense. Um, yes, because um, I, I never thought that the job as Secretary of Defense was a political job. I never saw it that way. And I never saw any of my predecessors act that way, nor past presidents act that way, whether Republican or Democrat. And so um, I, I really didn't have any qualms about uh, agreeing to be Secretary of Defense in a democratic administration, because national security is an American issue. It's not a Democrat issue or a Republican issue. It's an American issue. Uh, what this president has done, everything that you, you just noted, uh, he's changed that in a very dangerous way. And it is very dangerous. Uh, fortunately, we have a very disciplined uh, uh, military that has the highest standards. Now, we, we've got some that get in trouble for something, whatever. But there is no military in the world even comes close to our military as far as the quality of the people, the discipline of the people, the high morals and standards of the people. And uh, they themselves are not just puzzled, but they're very concerned about this, as you've talked to a lot of them, because they take an oath of office and they are told when they come in, uh, you're not a political animal. I mean, you, you check your politics at the door. You can right. internally, 
when you talk with your wife or your husband over the kitchen table, who are we going to vote for and why? That, that's your business. Uh, but not when you're at work. No, no, this is a different deal. So President Trump has really turned that around. And, and you mentioned the, the St. John's Church case when he had uh, Esper and Millie walk with him, which was terrible. I mean, absolutely terrible. Calling in the 101st Airborne and parked him outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, wrong. That's just just very, very wrong. Also, uh, taking billions of dollars out of the Defense Department budget appropriated for certain activities. Those activities were to improve the schooling for military families and housing for military families and hospitals for military families. He usurped that money that was appropriated for those specific purposes and said it was a national emergency and put that money toward the wall. Uh, I mean, you, you could go on and list item by item what he's done. Uh, uses uh, military people for props at campaign rallies and, and different meetings. And so I, I think when it comes down to, we all know what's coming, an election, and somebody's going to lose. And if it's the president, uh, are we going to have a problem because he will not acknowledge that he would accept the will of the people on election day? He, he, he said everything but that. I mean, he said, if I lose, and this is not me talking, this is the president talking, if I lose, that means the, the Democrats stole the election. It was fraudulent. And so when you've got a president saying things like that, it, it naturally it puts in the mind of people, what's going to happen here? Are we going to have to physically remove this guy or what's going to happen? Well, I hope it doesn't come to any of that. And uh, I hope we don't ha have to get our military involved in any of that. But I have confidence that whatever happens and whichever way this goes, um, the military will do the right thing because they take an oath of office and they'll handle it uh, the right way. Mm. I think many folks are going to be uh, uh, encouraged to hear that. We had a conversation last episode with Malcolm Nance where we talked about scenarios that could unfold. And you know, I think one of the things that, that people fear is will there be showdowns in, in cities between the Proud Boys and the National Guard? Will, will our young men and women be in that kind of a, a terrible situation uh, in our own streets at home? And there's a lot to be concerned about right now. And people are looking to leaders and looking to our military uh, for perspective and for strength and for courage. Um, but this show is, is also called Angry Americans because we say if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And the key is what do you do with that anger? How do you turn, it, turn that righteous anger into positive impact? You've been a guy who's been through incredibly tough times. You, know, you were in the same unit with your brother in Vietnam. I can't even imagine that. Uh, but you've always been, been positive. So I want to ask you, you know, everybody gets angry. Secretary Chuck Hagel, what makes you angry? Um, I think what makes me the most angry are duplicitous people. Mm -hmm. uh, um, people who say one thing and do something else, uh, who lie. And probably the, the most angry I get is <clears throat> when I see public officials who are sworn to uphold the Constitution, because we all, as you know, you took the oath of office, 
you take that oath of office, not for a political party, not for a president, uh, not for secretary of defense, but to uphold the Constitution of the United States. That means the people. That means this country. And what makes me most angry is when uh, politicians walk away from that and are duplicitous about it. Say, well, you know, but you've got to think about this. No, no. No, you, 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 you should be governed by one thing, and that's the oath of office you take. And that means you've got to have a North Star. Hmm. And you, you, the old Army Day taught, shoot an azimuth with your compass. And that azimuth's always got to be headed north. And <clears throat> that's the true star, the, the, the true star. And you've got to have a North Star. You follow your North Star, the truth. No, no equivocation. The truth, and that's it. And uh, I suppose the, the people who who uh, let people down and who don't do that and lie about the, for their own political benefit or, or some other benefit uh, make me the most angry. Mm. I appreciate that that, that very much. Um, you know, an- another theme of this show has been the dysfunction of our political system but also the growing dissatisfaction in this country with the political parties. 40% or so people are, are independents or unaffiliated. That's where I am. You know, people feel like, you know, you, John McCain, others are a dying breed in Washington. Um, what do you think is the future for this, this political system? If you and a couple other folks, you know, started your own party, I think you'd see a lot of folks would be interested in that, especially people who come from the national security and, and military space because uh, of this really polarized environment. What, what do you think about that? What do you think is gonna happen to the Republican party? And would you, do you see, and would you be a part of an alternative to what we have right now in our political system? Well, um, Paul, I wrote a book before I left the Senate. It came out in 2008 uh, called America, Our Next Chapter. And uh, it did pretty well. Yeah. Uh, New York Times bestsellers list, and they put it out in paperback and so on and so on. And in that book, um, I have a chapter on future politics in America. And that book came out in 2008. One of the things I say is I think that, that you're going to see more and more a more independent movement in this country away from parties. Uh, that's also because our finance laws uh, allow candidates not to have to rely on parties. I mean, you've got tremendous financing, and, and I think they need to be changed. I think they're wrong, so many of them. But, uh, but that's, that's the way it is now. So my, my point to answer your question is that even back, in, even in terms of the century, as we moved into the 2000s, I could see erosions in both parties. I could see people unhappy with with both parties. And so uh, what happens over the next few years, um, I don't know, but I, I have seen very clearly the allegiance just to parties, where parties used to have strong allegiances because they had they had sets of priorities and, and philosophical approaches that they believed in. The Republicans had one, Democrats had others, um, and they were they're pretty clear. So when you you said, "Well, I'm a Democrat" or "I'm a Republican," most people could ca- could tell you why they were a Democrat or why they were Republican. 
I don't think many people can articulate today yeah. why they're Republican or Democrat. And for the Republicans, uh, there is no Republican Party today. There's a Trump Party. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have just all folded the Republicans in the, in the Congress and across this country, whatever Donald Trump wants. And now they can say whatever they want. Well, I, I, I agreed with him on this. And I said, no, I mean, what he's done to destroy institutions in this town, in Washington, D.C. Just the example that you use at the Pentagon, how he's taken advantage of so much of that. Uh, no, it, it, it's a Trump power party, is what it is. The Republican Party is floundering. And if President Trump loses, the Republican Party is going to have a dark day. They're going to have to go in and, and really spend some time working with themselves on what happened. Uh, did we get too close? Did, did we give up who we are? And if we even know who we are and what we believe in, what we stand in. Number one, for example, just give an example. The Republican Party that I started in, my first vote was cast in Vietnam, uh, by the way, sitting on top of an armored personnel carrier in the Mekong Delta in 68, was for Republicans. And I've been a Republican ever since. But one of the first tenets of the Republican Party has always been fiscal responsibility. And, and what you've seen, we, we saw Bill Clinton hand off a, a balanced budget, the first one in years and years, to George W. Bush. Well, eight years of George W. Bush just blew that because of two wars, recession, worst, worst recession we've had since the Great Depression, all kinds of problems. So. Uh, no more balanced budget, big deficits. This, the next Republican president comes in, President Trump, and aside from the COVID and what the government's had to do there to, to try to help people, but he runs up last year a, a trillion dollar deficit, a trillion dollar deficit for last, last year. We've never had anything like that uh, except in our World War II days. Because of the tax cuts and so on and so on. How are you going to pay for all this? Well, it'll take care of itself. So so you have a, a trillion-dollar tax deficit last year. This year, we ended with a $3.1 trillion deficit. Well, that's, that's because of COVID, too, and some of those other things. But my point is this. <clears throat> Republicans, that was their number one thing. Keep control of the budget. Be careful. This will get out of hand. And your young people, the next two generations, everybody, they're going to have to pay for it. And they're, going to, they're have, going to have to do without. So I give you that as just one example of what this review is. The Democrats are, got it on the other side. I mean, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, their ideas uh, about socializing a lot of the country's programs. Well, I, th- I think everything should get a fair hearing. I think everybody should debate it. I don't think anything should be... Uh, off the table. But boy, that, that's pretty radical. I mean, what, what Bernie's been saying, and Elizabeth Warren and others, uh, compared to where we've been in this country, that's pretty radical stuff. So both parties are going to have to come to grips here with all of this, because of what you said, I, I think most people, most Americans are somewhere in between, center left, center right, but, but not really on, on, those, uh, on those fringes. So uh, as to the future, I think it's wide open, and I think you can see anything develop. Well, I think folks are, are going to be looking <laughs> to voices like yours more than ever. You know, Nebraska and, and you and your experience are so interesting because 
as you know, you probably know, Bob Carey is a friend and a mentor to me. And yeah. you and Bob Carey both served in Vietnam. You both served in the Senate. You both came from Nebraska. If you came home from Vietnam, you know, right now and in this environment and Bob Carey came home, you probably wouldn't want to be a Republican. He probably wouldn't want to be a Democrat. <laughs> you guys would both be political jump balls. And, and yeah. I think that's what is happening in this country. And there's a longing you know, for that middle, if you will. I think independent is a better way to frame it than middle. It's unaffiliated. It's country over party. And, and I hope that, uh, you know, I hope Biden wins. And I hope if he does win, he thinks about that and how he shapes up his cabinet and how he lays out the next couple of years. Because for the first time in a long time, maybe in my lifetime, the Democrats actually have the upper hand on national security and defense, and they're talking about it, right? They, yeah. they usually give that ground to the Republicans. And the Republicans said for years and years, we're strong on national defense. And people say, well, how do you know Republicans are strong on national defense? Well, they say it all the time, right? And the Democrats just didn't say it and they didn't put veterans out in front. And now this dynamic has changed where you've got, you know, a blue star dad in Joe Biden um, who's running against a draft dodger who could have gone to Vietnam when you did, but instead was, was doing something else. So I think it's a really precarious and important time. I want to encourage you to get to be out in front as much as possible because I think the younger generation in particular needs your voice, needs Bob Carey, needs these other guys and gals who can represent alternatives. Um, in, in, in the meantime, um, as, as, as this unfolds into January and into next year, what do you want to see from Biden? You, you, you're now part of, uh, of, of national security leaders for Biden, right? A bipartisan group. What do you want to see from Biden or what do you expect to see from Biden in the area of national defense and security Secretary of Defense is going to be the first thing that comes up. It seems like Michelle Flournoy is always a name that's out there. Um, Pete Buttigieg is a name that's out there. All kinds of names are going to come flying out. McRaven came out boldly this week uh, in support of Biden. Uh, are there leaders that you see or you would recommend or you have recommended to Biden that you think should be essential in rebuilding the military, our foreign policy, and the national defense community? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, I've known. Uh, and worked with Joe Biden for over 25 years. I've been all over the world with him. And um, I don't speak for him, uh, but I, I think I have a pretty good idea how he operates. I mean, his thinking about foreign policy, about national security policy, including Defense Department. And uh, it's an area that he takes very seriously. And I think that if he's elected, you will see him <clears throat> undertake immediately with all the problems and the challenges he's going to have facing him uh, the day he steps in that office on January 20th. Uh, I think he will make a priority to <clears throat> assess uh, America's foreign policy, meaning our national security, our national interests. I think there will be an assessment done. I think he will be very involved in that. Uh, he'll bring good people in. He has good people now around him in his campaign. He's always had a reputation in the Senate for having some of the best staff in the Senate. He had good people as vice president. Um, and uh, I think that assessment is, is going to be one of the, the priority items on, on his agenda. I think he's, he will spend time <clears throat> assessing what the Pentagon needs, as he will with the State Department. And, and uh, our intelligence agencies. So uh, I don't know of an individual out there today who 
understands how all this fits as well as Biden and into our domestic interest, into our domestic policy. And uh, I don't know an individual out there who has the style and the ability and the reputation to bring people together. I mean, he talks in his, his speeches uh, and uh, interviews about being a uniter, trying to bring people together. Um, President Trump hasn't done that. I mean, he's gone just the opposite way. It's the first time uh, I've seen that ever happen in my lifetime, that a president try, doesn't try to unite the country. And he, he's, he's done the opposite. Biden will try to unite the country. It's not going to happen first year, second year. He's going to have big issues. He'll have issues with his own party and so on. But I, I am absolutely convinced. And, I, and I've been, I talked to Joe and I talked to his people. And um, I pass along thoughts and names and so on, who I think uh, they, they should be looking at. And I know they're, they're, they're doing that now. I know they've been doing that the last six months, working on a, a team. Uh, so that if he's elected mm-hmm. and he has to take charge of the government on January 20th, he's not standing there flat-footed and what do I do now? Uh, so he'll be prepared. Uh, there, there'll be, there's no question about that. And again, it's interesting because uh, of all the different candidates out there, and there are a lot of good ones, you know, a lot of people have their own uh, areas of strength and expertise. Uh, Biden is is the one who would be, I think, in my opinion, most right for this time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think about that in the larger context of history. Isn't it interesting <clears throat> that somehow we have found the right leader at the right time in our history? Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed on that one. <laughs> and and uh, the question I want to ask you that I ask of all our guests, we talk about what makes you angry, but you're a guy who brings positivity. Uh, you're, you're always inspiring others. You're always mentoring others. Uh, in, in, in getting ready for this interview, I also reflected on the fact that you also had a tradition of dressing up on Halloween like your <laughs> colleagues in the Senate. So in 2007, I, I saw that you dressed up like Joe Biden. Uh, and so I want to ask you, you know, first, uh, what makes you happy, but I'm also going to come back and ask you what your Halloween costume is going to be this year. But (laughs) secretary Chuck Hagel, what makes you happy? Halloween. Uh, no, I mean, people make me happy. Uh, uh, I like people and, uh, I get, I get great strength from people, listening to people, having fun with people. Uh, always have some fun and, and, and no matter how serious it is or what the job is. And there's a lot of serious parts to every job, but it, it, it's people for, for me. And um, just the wondrousness of, a, of the world we live in with all the problems that we've got. Uh, but I like to get up in the morning and, and <clears throat> look out and see and kind of take the approach of, you know, w- what is possible? What could, what could we do today? I mean, what can, could we accomplish? Give me what's possible rather than go through a Greek tragedy <clears throat> every day. You know, get up in the morning and say, oh, my God, is this uh, no reason to, to leave the house. No, that's not who we are, I don't think. And, and um, I, I just think that the wondrousness of, and the opportunities we have as Americans, I think many, many times we take for granted. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we just don't appreciate what we've got and all the the things, the opportunities that we have 
to do things, to make the, make world, the world better. And I think the one thing that drives me as much as anything, it's you, Paul, it's like uh, so many others in this country, in the history of our country, um, little things to make the world better. And just try to make the world better, whether it's a smile to a gasoline attendant down at 7-Eleven or whatever it is. Have a little fun and just make the world better, and you feel better. I mean, you just feel better. You don't have to change the world, or but just little things. Uh, and um, for me, that's that's really important because I, I draw strength from that. And then I can go on and do the other things and some of the big things I had to take on, especially as Secretary of Defense, serious uh, stuff. Um, if my frame of mind was right, uh, it, was, it was a lot easier, and I think I made clearer decisions. Yeah, I, I saw that. I mean, that was the command climate you created. When you went into a meeting at the Pentagon that, that you were mm-hmm. hosting or convening, there was that air of, of, uh, of optimism, of positivity, of support, you know, approaching every day as an opportunity and, and not necessarily a challenge. But I'm not going to let you off the hook. Have you decided on a Halloween costume? <laughs> no, no, I haven't. I, I'm sorry because of the coronavirus. We, I can't have as much fun with them. But I was thinking the other day, Paul, if if I could do it, what would I do? And, be, and who would who would I surprise? Because I, I uh, surprised Colin Powell when he was Secretary of State. I called his office. I talked to his secretary and told her what I had in mind. Oh, my God, she loved it. I said, so why don't you get him at 5 o'clock, you tell him that Senator Hagel needs to come over and see him. It's very important. I don't want him to leave, and I'll be there. She, oh, she loved it. So I had this great Colin Powell mask on with the glasses and so on. And uh, <clears throat> Colin comes come out of the private office, comes around the corner, and I'm standing there. And he just he stared, shook his head, and he said, oh, my God. He said, am I really that ugly? <laughs> <laughs> but I did, I've done John McCain. I've done Joe Biden. I've done Pat Roberts. Uh, I can't remember all of them. But, but that was always a fun thing, and I, I did on, thank, on Halloween. I'd dress up as one of them. I wouldn't tell anybody who I was going to dress up as <laughs> well we're gonna well maybe we'll have to monitor social media and see we, we can uh, we, we we do a guest the guest we'll see if anybody guessed that you are going to be our guest uh maybe they can guess the next halloween costume that you've got coming up but there's some great <laughs> folks can see the photo of you online with biden you dressed as biden um but you always you always bring that positivity uh i, I the last question i just want to ask you because i think it's really really important you, you know you're the american dream in many ways <clears throat> No, humble beginnings, worked your butt off, built a business, uh, you know, went all the way to, to the highest level of, of American politics. When you were a private in the Army, you know, when you were awarded a Purple Heart, did you ever think you could be Secretary of Defense? And can you, if you were going to talk to that young man now, a young man or woman who maybe just was awarded a Purple Heart, maybe they're serving overseas, what would your message be to them now? Yeah, and I and I talked to those people. I did a lot when I was Secretary of Defense. Everywhere I went in the world, I sought out the low, lower enlisted ranks everywhere I went. But um, as to the question, when I was getting a Purple Heart pinned on, did I ever think that my future might unfold the way it did? No, I never did. But I, but I never. I never thought about it that way. 
and this is the advice I give uh, young people. Think about yourself, and not, not in terms of can I be Secretary of Defense, can I be a movie star, whatever you want to be. Uh, think about yourself in the sense of do the best you can. This is a Teddy Roosevelt quote. Do the best you can with what you've got, where you are. And if you do that and you focus on, on things that you're interested in, that you, that you really want to do for the right reasons, um, there's no limit to what you can do, where, where you will go. Maybe Secretary of Defense, maybe a Senator or whatever. But I never thought in terms like that, that I want to be a Secretary of Defense or Senator. And I just, uh, I can do better. I know I can do better. If I just keep doing better, um, I'll wind up in, in a pretty good spot someday. And w- what comes with that is opportunities. Mm-hmm. Because what comes with that, you get noticed. And when you get noticed, you have options. And people will recruit you. They'll say, well, would you be interested in doing this? So if you just stay focused on who you are, I've always had a, a belief, Paul, that we compete with only ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you compete with everybody else in the world, but really you're, you're, your main competitor is yourself. When you look in the mirror in the morning and you're shaving, I mean, you got to deal with that guy. And, and if you're honest, uh, it'll be good. That'll be the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that wisdom. And I think I, I can't have a conversation with you, with you without recognizing that that approach and that vision was present in the early days of when we were putting together the new GI Bill. Yeah. And you and Senator Webb and, and a couple other key leaders that worked across partisan lines created that opportunity for now millions. Millions of post-9-11 people and their family have gone to school, have used that GI Bill because you saw that opportunity that you experienced, you created that opportunity for others. And, and now here we are 12 years later now, right? Since that passed, it's amazing to think about it. And we had to fight like hell. People think that was easy, but that was a hard fight. And, and we got it done and your leadership was essential. So I, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for all of your inspiration and your service to the country that continues. And I have to then uh, present you with gifts. I'm sorry I can't do it in person, um, but I'm going to send you some gifts uh, to your place in Virginia. Uh, and maybe it'll go on the wall if the whiskey comes back on the wall. Yeah. But first off, we got some American-made, uh, Angry Americans uh, oh, gear yeah. coming your way. Very soft T-shirts made by the veterans of Oscar Mike. Um, and then I, this is not uh, signed by the chairmen of the Joint Chiefs, but we have a <laughs> bottle of Uncle Nearest Finest uh, Small Batch Whiskey, 1884. Big supporters of this show, uh, Uncle Nearest. Great story. Folks can get it at UncleNearest.com, but it's good stuff. It's coming your way. And then the last gift that's also a question is uh, ever since we started this show, from Pete Buttigieg to Mick Foley, we've asked them all the same question. We'll send you three colors of the <laughs> Easter candies peeps. <laughs> so, Secretary Hagel, if you had to choose one color, blue, yellow, or pink, which color would you choose and why? Well, I, probably blue because I'm, I just like blue. And it's the color of the infantry too, right? It's, well, I, I didn't think about that, but you're exactly right because I wore that blue braid as you did a long time. And you remember what, why is the sky blue? Because God loves the infantry, right? <laughs> well, 
We, we love you, sir. We appreciate your leadership. Uh, we're going to need it now more than ever, but thank you for your services, country. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for all you've done to, to mentor and support me and so many others out there, veterans and civilians alike. Uh, you know, one, one of the, the greatest testaments to your leadership, I think, will be uh, all of the folks that you've mentored and supported over the years. It's a tremendous network of people who admire and appreciate you uh, and, and are just grateful for all that you do. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for joining me. Uh, wish you all the best in the days ahead and hope we'll hear your voice a lot in the next couple of years. Paul, thank you. And thank you for what you have done over the years and all the people that have collaborated with you and have supported you. Uh, it's just, just terrific. And uh, it's going to make a difference. It really will make a difference. So stay at it, my friend. Yes, sir. As we and say here, stay vigilant and stay frosty. <laughs> Upward and onward. All right. Excellent. Paul, great, great to be with you. Take thank care you, sir. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Chuck Hagel ain't no fortunate son. I ain't no fortunate son, but I feel fortunate to have the support of so many people that made this episode happen and continue to support this show. Most of all, of course, got to thank my guest, Secretary Chuck Hagel. Get his books, follow everything he does, look for him in the media, especially in the weeks to come. He's an incredible American, a mentor to me and so many others, and I'm honored and grateful that he joined us on this show. Thankful also to his team that made it happen, especially Caroline Hagen, his special assistant, and to my old friend, Wendy Anderson. Wendy Anderson helped me connect with Secretary Hagel for this conversation. Wendy's got a long career of serving our country on national defense issues. Uh, she worked for Secretary Hagel. She worked for Ash Carter, uh, and she's now leading National Secretary Leaders for Biden. So my thanks to her and everyone at National Security Leaders for Biden. You should check them out online. It's National Security Leaders for Biden, the number four dot com. That's 780 retired generals, admirals, senior non-commissioned officers, ambassadors, and senior civilian national security officials who support Joe Biden for president from all political parties, from all backgrounds. It includes people like the executive director, Rear Admiral Michael E. Smith. It also includes leaders you may know, like Ambassador Susan Rice, the former national security advisor who joined us back on episode 44, one of our best episodes. You got to go back and check that out if you've never heard it. My thanks to everyone over there at National Security Leaders for Biden for making this happen and for all that you do. Also fortunate to have the amazing Righteous Media team, Mighty Mercy Rich, Creative Chris Rosenthal, Brilliant Bill Schultz, thanks to all of you. Also fortunate to have our friends at Uncle Nearest. As always, Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey is inspired by the best whiskey maker the world never knew. The first known African-American master distiller, Nathan Nearest Green. Go to UncleNearest.com. It's the most awarded new American premium whiskey brand in U.S. history. It's great stuff with a great mission, and I'm fortunate to have their support. You will be fortunate if you get to check it out. Show them some love and pass the word. Also fortunate to have amazing Patreon members, our vigilant Patreon members. Uh, they continue to support this work. If you haven't signed up and been a Patreon member, go check it out. 
It's a great way to support this independent, important media and to help us keep this going. So check us out on Patreon. If you can join us, please do. We got some cool stuff coming up. Also, I'm fortunate uh, to have everyone playing Guess the Guest on social media. If you don't know, every Wednesday on Angry American Social Media, we play Guess the Guest. If you guess the guest correctly, you win a fantastic Angry Americans prize. You might win some Uncle Nearest whiskey. You might win some Oscar Mike gear. And this week, our friend from California, Sonoma Badger, Mark Reed, correctly guessed Chuck Hagel on our Instagram page. So congratulations, Mark, and thanks for your continued support, my friend. And also, congratulations and thanks to Kilted CB on Twitter. I don't know his real name, but Kilted CB on Twitter also guessed the guest correctly. He guessed Chuck Hagel. He also added an awesome Denzel Washington jip that said, boom. It was pretty cool. But Kilted CB is a husband, a dad, a combat vet, a Highlander, a Viking, apparently, and a strong, independent American. Uh, That's what his Twitter bio says. And also based off his Twitter bio and the longitude and latitude, I think he's near Spokane, Washington. Uh, His bio says, I love this country, but I hate what hate is doing to it. Well said, sir. And my thanks to you. And as always, I want to hear from you, whoever you are. Tweet, post on our social. You can even call. We have a hotline. It's 833-33-ANGRY. Give us a shout and you know what will happen. Just like Sonoma Badger and Kilted CB. I'll make you famous. That's right. If you guess the guess, we will make you famous. And I may thank you here. My thanks also to my family. I am exceptionally fortunate to have such an amazing wife and two amazing boys. Fall is here. And the leaves in our undisclosed location are amazing. I love my boys so dearly. You know that if you listen to this show. But there's nothing better than seeing my little boys jump in a massive pile of leaves today. The leaves changing in the Northeast and in New York and in my undisclosed location are brilliant. And I just feel grateful to be able to have an opportunity to be with my boys and see them jumping in a pile of leaves, especially in times like this. So I just want to thank them. And related... I want to thank a guy named John Cardillo. John Cardillo is on Twitter and he's controversial. He describes himself as a TV guy and was in the NYPD once upon a time. He said his horses call him a wannabe cowboy. And he tweeted something this week that got people really riled up. He posted a picture of Joe Biden kissing his son Hunter Biden on the cheek. It's a beautiful black and white picture of a father and son embracing. And Joe Cardillo wrote, does this look like an appropriate father-son interaction to you? That's what he tweeted. And folks on Twitter went bonkers appropriately. And here's what I said. Only a coward or a weakling would mock a father for this. I have two children. I can't imagine losing one of them. Joe Biden lost two. He lost two children. This was a photo of his only son that's left. This is not just a good man's love for his son. It's the love for all his kids, including the two that are gone forever. So my thanks to this hater, John Cardillo, for unleashing so much love in response to his hate. Because that's the right way to respond to hate, with love. That's what I try to do. That's what I hope you will do. I hope that's what Joe Biden continues to do. 
But my thanks, even to the haters, for inspiring all the love. And my thanks to everyone who continues to retweet, subscribe, and support this show. Please keep that feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. You can go to angryamericans.us and you can get merch. We got merch back up in the store. Lots of cool merch. You can have it in time for the winter. You can stock up now for Christmas. You can get ready for the next wave of the pandemic with lots of great Angry Americans gear. And you can sign up for our newsletter. You can check out our YouTube page and much more. So go check it out and please do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. And as you do that, we will continue to adapt, improvise, and overcome. Stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. Please encourage your folks to subscribe and spread the word. We'll keep this movement growing week by week by week. We're coming close on episode 100, and we're going to definitely celebrate when that hits. But thanks to all of you who continue to spread the word and spend some of your valuable time with me and this show. And there's plenty of reason to be angry, but there's a way to turn it. There's a way to channel it. There's a way to harness it. And there's always a way to make an impact. And now, more than ever, a way for you to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. And now, more than ever, there's an opportunity to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. We need some helpers. We need more helpers. And helpers come in all forms. I talked to you about that, but there's ways that you can help right now. Well, I've seen Jesus play with flames in a lake of fire that I was standing in. And this is a public service announcement. There is a new Sturgill Simpson album out. It's a masterful bluegrass album. This is a bluegrass version of his amazing song, Turtles All the Way Down, that you just heard. Now, anything from Sturgill Simpson is a true gift to the world, but this especially. He's one of the most talented dudes on earth. He's also a Navy vet who often gives back to his community and used this album to give back to the military community. And last year, I told you about his must-have album, Sound and Fury. He wrote a great letter when he put out the new album that I can post on social, but here's the end of it that you need to know about. Sturgill Simpson wrote, Mostly, I'm just extremely grateful to wake up every day and look at my children. When I'm not playing with my kids, I just sit around playing guitar all day, which I haven't really done for a number of years. The world's hurting right now in so many ways. There's a lot of people in way worse shape than most of us could ever imagine. I cannot fix or change any of this, but I can change myself. And I can put some music out, and hopefully, if nothing else, it might make some people forget about their pain and troubles for 45 minutes. So I want you to go and listen to this album. It will help you forget about your pain and troubles for 45 minutes. It'll also inspire you. It'll remind you how great this country is, and it might motivate you to get out and vote. I covered that last episode. But one more thing. I want you to consider flying the American flag, especially if you've never done it before. I posted something on Instagram this week that I wanted to share with you and have you consider especially if you never have before. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that this week I taught my son how to fold a flag and I taught him what to do with an old flag, how to retire an old flag. So I took him down to the local American Legion Hall for the first time and we folded the flag and we deposited it in the old mailbox that the American Legion Hall has 
put together so you can take old flags. It's something the American Legion does all across this country that I really love. The VFW and other groups do it too. It's useful and it's important and almost nobody else does it. And it's also a great teaching tool for kids. So check out your local post and fly an American flag. I'll be flying a new flag on election day. And I encourage you to consider doing the same. That flag doesn't belong to Trump. It belongs to us, to all of us. And it's up to all of us to support, encourage, and demonstrate real, true American leadership. And it's okay to be angry, especially now. And no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. That's because we're paying attention. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Fly that flag. Stay frosty and stay vigilant, America. Two and through the myth that we all cause.